Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, 1 Kings chapter 6 continued. Well, this chapter and the next one in 1 Kings are all about building God's temple. And so we're going to take considerable time with it because so many principles and and, and challenging issues just pop out of the woodwork as we examine this important section of Holy Scripture. Now, we took a little detour to end last week's lesson. We're going to take a few more today that discussed the issue of Bible chronology and how the reign of the kings, both Hebrew kings and Gentile kings, played the central role in determining the dates concerning biblical events, like we see quoted in textbooks. And this is because while oftentimes we'll see the day and the month of an event recorded in the Bible, we don't get a date that involves a calendar year. And if we do we get a year that is nearly always in relation to the reign of some king or another. We'll say it's the first year of king so-and-so or the tenth year of king so-and-so, the tenth year of his reign. And there were five standard protocols used in ancient days to define the length of reign of a king. Regnal, accession year, post-dating, non-accession year, and uh, co-regency. And you can review from last week's lesson if you want to know more about those protocols. And the thing is, it's nearly impossible in most cases to know which of these methods is being used to report the reign of a particular king in the Bible. But we can be sure that all five methods are all mixed up in there somewhere. The bottom line is we shouldn't get too rigid, have some intense and divisive argument over dates and calendars of ancient times because much of it involves speculation and guesswork, even if it's educated guessing. However, much of the problem we have today of getting it right lies on the Gentile side of the equation. Gentiles have for centuries wanted to approach the Bible as though the Hebrew culture in which it was written could be ignored. And thus we haven't bothered to consult ancient Hebrew records or ask learned Jews about calendar and chronology issues, most of which they well understand. (laughs) Modern Christians and Messianics have great interest in Bible chronology, the order of things have happened. And it is quite helpful if we can get a good idea of the timing of these important events. Fortunately, as the books of the Old Testament roll by and as we enter the the time of the kings in Israel, we can get the accuracy into a, a pretty narrow range, probably five years plus or minus a bit. 
We're going to delve into a few more calendar and dating issues as we proceed. And I think you're going to find this information useful for all of your Bible studies and for helping to establish context. Now, as we began 1 Kings chapter 6, we're told of the commencement of construction for the temple. And we are going to go over the construction in some detail. It is recorded that it was in the 480th year after the people, the Am, left Egypt that construction began. We're also told that this happened in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, even given the month of Ziv to narrow it down. And as we discussed last week, exactly what constitutes the beginning of a construction isn't precisely known. Even though near the end of this chapter it says that the foundation was laid in the month of Ziv in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, it's hard to understand just what that means because there's no way that the large limestone blocks were quarried, delivered to the site, the foundation dug, and the stones all put into place in one month. Nevertheless, the second month of the Jewish year in the fourth year of Solomon's reign is considered a kind of, of ceremonial, if you would, commencement date for the building of the first temple. So that's what we need to work from. Now, the month of Ziv is the same as the month of Iyar. And Ziv is the name for this month used by Israel before they went into exile in Babylon. And after the exile, they adopted the Babylonian names for the months of the year. Ziv is Hebrew, Iyar is Babylonian. Actually, it's Chaldean. And it is the equivalent of our modern day late April, maybe May, June time frame. It'll move around in that range for us. Ziv means brilliance or, or splendor. And it's an apt name for a springtime month with the, the bursting forth of flowers and crops and the birth of new life all throughout the animal kingdom. What a great month to start the construction of the temple. Now if we assume that Solomon's reign started in 971 B.C., and this is just a generally accepted date, plus or minus a couple of years, and we believe the Scriptures that it was in the fourth year of his reign that construction began, then we can assign an approximate date of 967 B.C. that the foundation for the first temple was laid. If we then accept that the statement that the start date was 480 years after leaving Egypt, then we can date the Exodus to 1459 B.C. But is that correct? Most modern Christian scholars don't accept this because they think the Exodus was closer to around 1250 B.C. I find no legitimate reason not to accept the roughly 14... 50 B.C. date. Now let me explain something about Bible chronology that I haven't talked about in quite a long time. It's commonly said among Bible scholars that the calendar used in the Bible is the Jewish or the Hebrew or the, the biblical calendar and thus if one assumes a 12-month year, then what we have here 
is that a lunar month is 29 and one half days, one full cycle of the moon, 12 month year, 12 times 29 and a half, 354. Of course, today we calculate a year correctly as 365 days and a bit. So the standard statement is that the Bible year is shorter than the modern year by 11 days. So when we when the Bible gives us some number of years, we have to adjust by assuming fewer years. Thus, for instance, if the Bible says 100 years, they're really speaking of 35,400 days, 100 times 354, not 36,500 days, 100 times 365. So by modern calendars, then 100 Bible years, 100 Bible years is really only 97 actual years. Thus, in our case, since the Bible record records 480 years, since the Exodus, that really only amounts to 466 years. Well, here's the issue. I knew you'd love this. 365 days is a solar year. And it has nothing to do with counting lunar cycles. A solar year is the time measured in days that it takes for the Earth to orbit the Sun one complete cycle. And as I already said, a lunar year is simply 12 months times 29 and a half day lunar cycles, 354 days. So in modern times, the reality is we don't even consider the moon cycles whatsoever in calculating a year, and we don't even use them to calculate a month. Now, up through Christ's era, months alternated in their length. In that one month was 29 days, the next month was 30 days, and then the cycle would repeat. Why do it that way? Because it's pretty tough to have a month of 29 days plus a half a day. Think about that. That would have us changing months halfway through the next day. So by having one month at 29, the next month at 30, you wind up with an average, 29 and a half. Now, it's not perfect, but it works. And this was done because up to this point in history, one month was defined as being exactly one cycle of the moon. Therefore, the first day of each month was the new moon, and exactly halfway through every month was the full moon. It never changed. But in 45 BC, when Julius Caesar, it was when Julius Caesar decreed that the Roman Empire would adopt a new universal calendar based entirely on the sun cycle. All right, and so the so the lunar cycle would no longer play a role in determining months or years. Part of the reason for this is that the Romans were sun god worshippers. Right? While most other cultures, we talked about this last evening, were moon god worshippers. So it made sense that ordering the year was based on the movement of their god through the sky. Thus, while the idea of dividing a year into 12 months was retained by Caesar, under the Roman system, 
months were assigned differing numbers of days. 28, 29, 30, or 31. Which then, of course, all added up to 365, one sun cycle. But here's the fallacy. Okay. The Jews didn't base everything solely on moon cycles. All right. These ancient people weren't ignorant. They understood the movement of the sun and they understood a year was longer than exactly 12 lunar months, longer than 354 days. They well understood that a solar year was 365 days and so they regularly added extra days to the calendar and at times a full extra month to adjust it. That's right, the Hebrew calendar has an extra month added to it seven times over a 19-year period cycle. Okay? In a cycle of 3, 6, 8, 11, 14, 17, and 19 years, an extra month is added called Edar Beth. And thus occasionally, they have a 13-month year. Now it's done for a pretty practical reason. Had they used only the lunar cycle to determine months and years and disregarded the solar cycle, pretty soon the biblical feasts would all start falling in the wrong season. Because the biblical feasts were agricultural feasts. They were based on agricultural growing seasons of the year. And certain of first fruits of the harvest had to be offered at the temple according to Torah law. What would happen if the festival of first fruits, for instance, a springtime festival, is to occur on Nisan 16, and time found itself in midsummer, or worse, in midwinter? In other words, it's inevitable that because lunar cycles and solar cycles don't line up, that according to the fixed calendar dates of the Torah, the seasons would be constantly shifting changing at the rate of 11 days every year. So in our modern era, as in ancient times, the Jewish calendar still uses lunar cycles to determine months. The month changes precisely in tune with the moon, but the Jewish calendar also still observes the solar cycle. And it adjusts the lunar calendar about every three years on average to keep the two an approximate relationship, just as they did in ancient biblical times. Bottom line, for all practical purposes, a biblical or Jewish year is the same as a modern year. There's no adjustment needed. That's just a total fallacy. So we can use the years just as they're presented to us in the Bible without alteration. Okay? Alright, let's read King 6. Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 from the beginning. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 6. Now that you're all calendar experts. <laughs> Page um, 373 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It was the 400 
and 80th year after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Shlomo's reign over Israel in the month of Siv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of Adonai. The house which King Shlomo built for Adonai was 105 feet long, 35 feet wide, 52 and a half feet high. The hall fronting the temple of the house was 35 feet long, the same as the width of the house itself, so that it's 17 and a half foot width extended frontward from the house. The windows he made for the house were wide on the inside and narrow on the outside. And against the wall of the house he built an annex all the way around. It went all the way around the walls of the house including both the temple and the sanctuary. The lowest floor of the annex was eight and three quarters feet wide, the middle floor ten and a half feet wide, the third floor twelve and a quarter feet wide, for he had made the outer part of the wall of the house step-shaped so that the beams of the annex would not have to be attached to the house walls. For the house, when under construction, was built of stone prepared at the quarry so that no hammer, chisel, or iron tool of any kind was heard in the house while it was being built. Now the entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the house. A spiral staircase went up to the middle floor and on to the third. So he built the house and after finishing it, he puts it, its roof on cedar planks over beams. Each floor of the annex surrounding the house was eight and three quarters feet high and was attached to the house with beams of cedar. Then, this word about Adonai came to Shlomo concerning this house which you are building. If you will live according to my regulations, follow my rulings and observe all my mitzvot and live by them, then I will establish with you my promise that I made to David your father. I will live in it among the people of Israel. I will not abandon my people Israel. So Shlomo finished building the house and the insides of the walls of the house he built with boards of cedar and from the floor of the house to the joists of the ceiling he covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the houses with boards of cypress. Now the 35 foot back portion of the house he built with boards of cedar from floor to the joist and reserved this part of the house to be the sanctuary, the especially holy place. While the rest of the house, that is the temple in front, was 70 feet long. The cedar covering the house was carved with gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was visible. In the inner part of the house, he set up the sanctuary so that the ark for the covenant of Adonai could be placed there. This sanctuary was 35 feet long, wide, and high. It was overlaid with pure gold. In front of it, he set an altar, which he covered with cedar. Shlomo overlaid the interior of the house with pure gold, had chains of gold placed before the sanctuary, which itself he overlaid with gold. The entire house he overlaid with gold until it was completely covered with it. He also overlaid with gold the entire altar that belonged to the sanctuary. And inside the sanctuary, he made uh, two karvim, cherubim of olive wood, each 17 and a half feet high. Each of the two wings of one of the cherubim was eight and three quarters feet long, so that the distance from the end of one wing to the end of the other was 17 and a half feet. Likewise, the wing spread of the other cherub was 17 and a half feet. Both keruvim were identical in shape and size. 
Now, the height of the one keruv was seventeen and a half feet, likewise that of the other. He set the cherubs in the house of the inner house in the inner house, the wings of the cherubs were stretch out, so that the wing of the one touched the wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the Karuvim with gold. And all around the walls of the house, house, both inside the sanctuary, outside of it, he carved figures of cherubs, of palm trees, of open flowers. And he overlaid the floor of the house with gold, both inside the sanctuary and outside it. For the entrance to the sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. He set within... He set him within a five-sided door frame. And on the two olive wood doors, he carved figures of karuvim, palm trees, open flowers. He overlaid those doors with gold, forcing the gold into the shapes of the karuvim and the palm trees as well. And for the entrance to the temple, he also made doorposts of olive wood, set within a rectangular dome frame, and two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door were folding as were the two leaves of the other. And on them he carved cherubs, palm trees, open flowers, overlaying them with gold fitted to the carved work. He built the inner courtyard with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. And the foundation of the house of Adonai was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Fool, which is the eighth month, all parts of the house were completed exactly as designed. Thus, he was seven years in building it. <clears throat> Verse 2 tells us that the basic size of the main structure of the temple was 60 cubits long by 12 cubits cubits wide by 30 cubits high. Most modern Bibles will convert cubits to feet. But this conversion produces controversial numbers. The problem is that a cubit was not a standardized measurement. It could denote a certain length in one society or a nation that was different from that of another society or nation. Even more, it was common that each society observed a regular or a common cubit, and it also observed a royal cubit. The royal cubit, of course, always being a little longer. Now, a cubit was generally defined as the length from a man's fingertips to his elbow. So the farther back we go in time, a cubit was more approximate than exact. But eventually, a precise standard for a cubit was established on a nation-by-nation basis. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over which cubit is being used in the building of Solomon's temple. I'm not going to get into the debate because I don't think there's any way to know for sure. In modern terms... The various cubits ranged from a little over 17 inches to a little under 24 inches. And if we take a middle ground of around 20 inches, 
then we would find the temple being 100 feet long, 33 feet wide, 50 feet uh, high. The complete Jewish Bible uses the Egyptian royal cubit of 20 and a half inches. So for the sake of simplicity, from here on, we're just going to use the complete Jewish Bible numbers. So what we instantly see is that the main temple building would be a modest... 3,675 square feet. Now the first first interesting thing to note is that the new temple structure is exactly twice the size of the wilderness tabernacle that it's replacing. Thus we can know that the tent, the wilderness tent, was only a little over 1,800 square feet. Pretty big tent though. Exodus 26 says the tabernacle was 30 by 10 cubits, Solomon's temple, 60 by 20. The tabernacle's holy of holies, 10 by 10, Solomon's temple, 20 by 20. Tabernacle's outer room, 20 by 10, temple, 40 by 20. So we can see that while the temple is much larger, the proportions were maintained. There's nothing wrong with this doubling of size. The Exodus measurements were for the sacred tent, the Mishkan, that had to be packed up for travel with Israel in the wilderness. Now the temple was a permanent structure, so its its size isn't restricted by practicality. The term we're going to see throughout this story of the temple's construction is the house of Adonai or the house of the Lord or in Hebrew, Beit, Yehovah. And this is, of course, reflecting the common belief of that time that a God literally resided within the temple that his or her worshippers built for them. Thus, the worshippers would bring their gods all the comforts of life couches to lay on, the best food to eat, the highest grade of wine to drink, and even human women or men for them to consort with. Of course, the Hebrew God, Yehovah, makes it clear He doesn't reside in houses built by human hands. He lives in heaven. Isaiah 66.1 Heaven is my throne says Adonai. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me? What sort of place could you devise for my rest? Even Solomon, who was putting out this incredible amount of time in the kingdom's wealth to build this amazing building, inherently knew that while more than 100 times In the Holy Scriptures, the Mishkan is indeed called God's dwelling place. The term is a euphemism. It's not literal. In fact, first in 1 Kings, a couple chapters from now, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is recorded as saying, but can God actually live on earth? Why, heaven itself, even the heaven of heavens, can't contain you. So how much less this house that I've built Even so, Adonai, my God, pay attention to your servant's prayer and plea and listen to the cry and prayer that your servant is praying before you today that your eyes will be open toward this house night 
and day toward the place concerning which you said, My name will be there. To listen to the prayer your servant will pray toward this place. Yes, listen to the plea of your servant and also to that of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Here in heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. Another interesting factor before we get into the actual details of the temple is its location. And it's interesting that we don't find it described here in 1 Kings. And as a result, we're going to find Bible commentators making all sorts of speculations of where it must have been and and many claiming that it was somewhere down the hill from the Temple Mount where, where it's located today. All that's needed to clear this up is to go to Second Chronicles chapter 3, the parallel account to this event to get the answer. Second Chronicles 3, 1 says, Then Shlomo began to build the house of Adonai in Yerushalayim on Mount Moriah, where Adonai had appeared to David his father. Provision had been made for this place uh, that David had chosen, the threshing floor of Ornan the Yevusi, the Jebusite. Matter solved. Even more, we are fortunate that in our time, walls of Solomon's temple have been uncovered. And within the last few days, an entire new section of the Davidson Archaeological Garden inside the old city of Jerusalem has been opened, which reveals walls from Solomon's era. All right, and for those that are going with me to Israel at the end of this year, you'll be seeing those. These are just below and adjacent to the uh, Temple Mount. On this drawing, it would be down this this direction, an area called the Ophel. All right, and um, they were probably these walls they've just uncovered were probably part of Solomon's palace complex. And there's little doubt, except by the most extreme skeptics or those politically predisposed, that Solomon's temple was built right where the Temple Mount is today. Well, the temple entrance was from the east. Thus, a priest walking in would be facing west. This means the Ark of the Covenant was facing east. And we've talked numerous times about the mysterious use of the direction east in the Bible as being important to the Lord. Note that when Yeshua returns, He's going to return through the eastern gate of the old city. And verse 3 describes another structure now that some translators call a porch, some call a hall, others a vestibule, a portico. This structure was at at the front of the main temple building and uh, on the east side so that a person had to pass through this porch or a hall to gain entry into the temple proper. There are no doors described, no side walls, so it probably had no ceiling, but it might have. Now we're going to see some other structures attached to this main temple building that were 
that are going to wind up, in essence, we're going to wind up with a temple complex. So the area of the holy place and the holy of holies um, is identified as the hekal to distinguish it from the other structures of the temple complex. And located in this hekal, verse 4 speaks of windows. Windows. All right. And these windows would have been very high up because there were tall structures. This is a cutaway you see here. There were tall structures attached to the exterior northern and southern walls of the Hekal. Thus, even though many translations, including our complete Jewish Bible, say that the windows were narrow on the outside and uh, wide on the inside, that's the way special portals were made on the defensive walls of walled cities, that's just a guess. All right? And along with many other Bible teachers, I think this doesn't make any sense. Okay? The description of the window construction is probably referring to lattice work that covered over the windows. There, there's no reason to make the windows of the temple in a matter that would reduce light and airflow, and they sure weren't going to be used as defensive positions for soldiers who wouldn't ever be allowed inside that holy place in the first place. Another temple complex is identified and called the Annex. Now the Annex was built using these celled partitions. And probably they were for storage, maybe for workspace, for Levites or priests. This annex encompassed three-fourths of the building, this side to the back and around the other side here. And, and the annex was built in a very unique way. It was done in, in what the Bible calls a reverse step configuration. In other words, one would think that when building a multi-story structure, all the floors would be of the same dimensions or the lowest floor would be the widest, the next floor a little less so, and so on. But this was built with the lowest floor as the narrowest and the top floor as the widest. All right? And verse 6 explains that this was so that the uh, temple walls, the Hekal walls, wouldn't be defaced by having supporting beams for the annex stuck through them. So the walls of the Hekal were built, were built seven cubits wide at the bottom, and then it went up, and then six cubits wide and then five cubits wide. So where you see this dark space here, imagine this is the exterior walls of the temple, the Hekal. Okay, so then it just fit together like a puzzle. Right. So the annex's floors, again, were five cubits, six cubits, seven cubits going up. Verse 7 explains that the quarry stones were used for the wall construction, but no iron chisel or tool was heard in the, in the house, the temple, while it was being built. The sages explain that this was an extra measure of caution and sanctity that Solomon employed based on the principle 
that no iron tool was to be used on the stones for the altar. However, this prohibition didn't really apply to the temple. So while at the quarry uh, site, iron tools were used on the temple stones, they had to be precisely made there and then transported to the temple building site and there they were fit together in precise order. They had been so expertly made that they simply lay into their proper place without modification. And after explaining in verse 8 that the entrance into the outer annex was from the outside, from the outside, not, not from the inside of the temple, the ceiling now becomes a subject. And the ceiling was built using multiple layers. That's how the tabernacle was built. The tabernacle ceiling was built using multiple layers. Highly decorated pan uh, cedar panels were, were visible inside the temple. And they were attached to a, a layer of cedar planks that acted as the temple roof. And when we get to verse 11... There is this sudden interruption. The narrative is interrupted about the temple construction and Solomon is given this prophetic message from God. No doubt through, through a prophet. The sages say that this prophet was Ahiah the Shilonite. Now this divine oracle carries a meaning that we all need to pay attention to. The Lord essentially warns Shlomo that with all the care and expense and focus that he is lavishing on his temple project, that he needs to remember something important. It is that trusting God and following his Torah commands is what's going to bring about the divine promise made to his father David. And that promise was that the Lord would dwell among His people, Israel, and would not abandon them. The implication is unmistakable. Yehovah is noticing that Solomon was beginning to count more on his industrious works and on his merit and the spending of his and his people's wealth in order to impress God. Sounding righteous, looking righteous, building this grand structure that, guess who'd get the credit for? Solomon. Requiring thousands of his citizens to sacrifice their personal time, their skills, their money for this grand plan. How much of this was about God? How much was about Solomon becoming envied and famous the world over? But even more, after spending all this time and effort, would Solomon now expect that this is what would induce Yehovah to continue the Davidic dynasty and to favor Shlomo in Israel? I mean, how could God possibly refuse to do so after Solomon has spent such great energy 
for God's house. You see, this is what happens to too many of us subconsciously. We write big checks. We come to our places of worship every time they open the doors. We teach a Sunday school class for years. We volunteer for mission trips. We wear the biggest, most expensive crosses or stars of David around our necks. Our homes are filled with biblical icons everywhere. We plaster our cars with religious bumper stickers. We travel to Israel regularly and we appear to be the most godly, pious people on our block. (laughs) But are we? What's our true motive for doing all these things? The Lord measures us by our faith and trust in Him. He also measures us by our humility before Him, by our grateful obedience with spirit-led submission to His timeless and immutable regulations and commandments. 1 Samuel 15.22 Samuel said, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice. Heeding orders than the fat of rams. See, in one sense, the temple was built as the authorized location for sacrifice and atonement. But in that sense, it was really only needed because God's people shunned obedience and instead sinned. Was Solomon doing something wrong in straining so mightily to build for God this beautiful edifice? No. Are we doing something wrong by giving until it hurts, by serving every hour that we're able, by going on mission trips, visiting Israel often to show our support? No. The question is, what do we expect from God in return for our efforts and our behavior? Can we substitute our never-ending works and pious behavior for trust in Him, in His Son, in His written Word? Can we make up for our sins by means of our good deeds and tireless work? The answer to that is no as well. I have known a number of believers who daily Well, let's say they live less than an upright lifestyle. But then they go on a mission trip for a few days. They speak glowingly of the Lord over and over to scores, maybe hundreds of people. They hand out tracts. Perhaps they hand out food or medical care. And they come back home and they return to that same questionable lifestyle. I've also known many folks who give and give and give in innumerable ways and then are perplexed and maybe even bitter when something bad happens to them. They think it shouldn't have. 
Because deep down, they thought that their activities amounted to the purchase of divine protection and immunity from trouble. You know, gee God, I was doing my part. How come you didn't do your part? I did this all for you, God. So why won't you do what I think you ought to do and keep me healthy and keep me prosperous? But God looks at the heart. And when He looked at Shlomo, He saw less than pure motives at work here. And of course, as we continue our study on the book of Kings, we're going to watch Shlomo slide into idolatry, into all manner of detestable behavior, all the while indignantly denying it and even doing some of these terrible things in the name of God. The next several verses resume with temple construction as it concerns the interior of the temple. And without getting into too much detail, we can say that enormous quantities of gold was used. Much ornamentation was employed. The cedar wood paneling was used mostly as an underlayment. All right? And it would cover the stone walls so that then gold sheeting could be attached to the cedar. The idea was that beautiful designs would be carved into the wood and then the paneling would be attached to the stone structure to fully cover it over and then thin gold leaf would be carefully applied to entirely cover the walls as it followed the delicate contours of all the panelings carvings. We'll continue with all this next week.